slide. <laughs> Please pray with me. Father, thank you for this night. And we thank you for the joy of it. And Lord, we thank you for the fact that you are here. But we ask you, Jesus, that you would pour out your spirit upon us, that our hearts may be fertile soil, that Eric's heart may be fertile soil, and that my words may be spoken as from you, that your word may be alive in all of us, we pray. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you. you may be seated. Eric, I'm not going to move the pulpit, so I am going to move you. Would you please come over here so I can look at you? Thank you, brother. Appreciate it. Eric and Abigail, it is a joy to be with you and your family and your friends and fellow ministers on this special day. It's a blessing. Can I look around? I hope you looked around and see. Everybody who's here is here because they love you and they're on your team. When I was at the, with the leadership uh, council and staff yesterday, I mentioned the basic spiritual principle that the Lord has called me to over the past few years. And to refresh your memory, Eric, and if it's useful to you, I hope it is, it can be something that deeply shapes your life and ministry. And what, is I'm, what am I talking about is this. I identify my prayerful consideration of several possibilities. I look at, you know, the daily lectionary, the, you know, the weekly preaching lectionary, some other sources. I identify a psalm that I'm going to read and pray at the start of my devotions every day for one week at a time. And I'm going to suggest that you consider doing that, at least occasionally, maybe one week a year with the psalm that we read tonight in the service. Why is that? Well, after you and I met yesterday, I realized that the sermon I prepared for tonight, which was rooted in the New Testament reading from 2 Timothy and the Gospel of John, was not the right sermon for you as you entered into the priesthood. Now, it was not a bad sermon, okay? And it might be right another time, and it, and it could have been true, it was there, and it might be right for somebody else. But I just deeply sensed as I got home last night that the Lord had a different word for you. So I stepped back and looked at the text that had been chosen, and I realized that this particular portion of Psalm 119 is particularly appropriate for the particular priestly ministry you're being called to in this season of your life. And I think by the time I get into this a little bit, you'll see the appropriateness of the fit will be clear. So if you have a Bible, turn to Psalm 119, find that in your Bible, verse 33 through 40. I want to make three preliminary comments before we dive in. The first comment is pretty self-evident, but it's sort of one of those missing the forest for the trees kind of an idea. This psalm is a prayer. So when you, Eric, consider a life of ministry, what is it if not an act and a process and a walk of constant prayer? Even before we jump into any specifics, I want you to just stop and think. The psalmist is praying for a life of constant communion and conversation with God. So he says things like, teach me, give me understanding, lead me, incline my heart, confirm your promise. He's praying a prayer built around the image of seeking the Lord at every turn, listening to him at every step. He's got, he's sort of piling up words for how he can communicate and how he and God can communicate about the word. So he's literally doing life as devotion and prayer, which leads to the possibility of ministry as prayer. And you just leave it there. You can sit with that. Think about it. Second, it is a prayer for the Word of God to work deeply into the life of the prayer. It's a prayer for personal transformation through the Word of God. So again, the same words. Teach me. 
Give me understanding. Lead me. Incline my heart. Those are not words of information. They're words of transformation. And unpacking that's going to be the substance of my message. The third, preliminarily, it establishes in a particular way the basis of the particular priestly ministry you're called to. And I've hinted at that a couple of times, so let me be more explicit. Explicit. The ordinal, the exhortation you're going to hear, and the vows you'll make, and the examination, and so on, together, all together, centers in a strong ministry of word and prayer and sacrament. Priestly ministry is more targeted and narrower and probably deeper and, in a sense, simpler than diaconal ministry. The deacon's responsibility, there's seven major responsibilities of the church as a whole. And the deacon has to keep his or her eye on all of those. Just make sure they're all operating. And to give attention to make sure that everything is being done that the church is meant to do. And you can never leave that behind. Because once a deacon, always a deacon. The priestly ministry is more specific. It's the feeding and guarding of the flock and the sheep through the word of God. You, Eric, have a calling that's to be applied at Redeemer, at least for the foreseeable future. And that will include normal priestly ministries and assistance to Ford. Sermons and teaching and presiding at the table and counseling and so on through the Word and teaching people according to the Word and guarding people. But you, Eric, will also spend more of your time ministering to God's scattered sheep and other flocks who are coming to you for a specialized ministry of healing from addiction, restoration after failure, support for a long-term journey out of a spiritual or psychological wilderness, relational wreckage, uh, excuse me, relational wreckage to be able to work their way through. There will be times when the priestly work can include hearing confessions and pronouncing absolution right in your office. Speaking clearly for God will come into play but the meat and potatoes of your work will be the skillful application of the Word of God and the ways of God as a healing agent in struggling souls. Even when you don't necessarily apply the Bible, bringing the truth of God to bear on the lives of people and the ways of God on the, uh, to bear on the lives of people is what you are going to be about. And this psalm becomes a particular gift to you in this priestly work, that particular priestly work. Because in this short prayer, what it brings to the table is the possibility of the transformation of minds, hearts, wills, and shame. Minds, hearts, wills, and shame. And what is the deep ministry you are called to do if it is not the transformation and healing of minds, hearts, wills, and shame? That's a long build up. So if you have a Bible, we're going to dig in. We're going to take this psalm two at a time, two verses at a time, four couplets, okay? Couplets. First couplet, verses 33 and 34. Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I will keep it to the edge. Give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. The focus there is on the mind. Teach me. And then the mind, to a deeper level, give me understanding. The psalmist is praying for the transformation of his mind so that he can clearly see not only what God says to do, but the deeper truth underneath that, underlying the will of God, which he refers to as the ways of God. Sort of underneath the will is the ways. What are the paths underneath it? And underneath that, the reasoning. 
So he begins with this request for God to teach him. I need you to be my teacher. But what are your ways? Give me understanding. Open my mind. Open my open my mind to the truths of reality and human identity underneath your law. You don't tell us to do things just arbitrarily. It connects with who we are. It connects with how life is meant to be. So open your word to me that I can see underneath the instruction, the path, the way, not only the what, but the how and the why of the life that God calls us into. I actually think this, these two verses together are sort of an Old Testament equivalent of Romans chapter 12. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what is the will of God is, that which is good and perfect and acceptable. It's the same thing in New Testament terms. But what the goal of all this is, the psalmist is saying, is I want to obey you, but I want my walking with you not to be the walking of a mule being led by bit and bridle, but the walking alongside of a man, a friend, a partner, who is walking with God, fully engaged in thought and conversation. So you're praying that for yourself. Now I thought it'd be fun to kind of talk about an example. What if I, how does this work? And I like to think about the particular virtues, the scriptural virtues, and any God, any virtue that God might instruct you to pursue, that you then might be called to pass on to someone else. And the one that popped to mind is self-control. There is the what. What is self-control? Checking our impulses and passions and automatic habitual inclinations against the will of God. So being willing at that point in time to listen to the will of God and say no to self and lay aside self. Now obviously that goes enormously against the grain of our society, right? Because our society says if you feel it, you desire it, if you want it, it must be you. And therefore, in order for you to be truly human and fulfilled, you must express every desire. And no one should stand in the way of your desires and inclinations, and nothing should stand in the ways of your desires and inclinations, even your own physical body. Nothing can tell you what to do. So in order for you, or the people that you're working with, to, or the church, to sustain a no to worldly passion in a context that disciples us to do the opposite, we've got to take not just what God says, but we've got to get down into the way it happens in our lives and the why that it happens. What is the way of walking in self-control? Romans chapter 8 pops to mind. Walk by the Spirit, you will not fulfill the desires of the flesh. So then that gets into, what does it mean to walk by the Spirit? What is the why? Well, there's the fundamental biblical truth. Guess what? That we're not the defining center of the universe. You aren't, I'm not, none of us are. And we've got to come to grips with the fact that there's somebody out there that's bigger than us. And we also have to come to grips with the fact that our desires are often in curvatus and say, curved in on ourselves. We turn our desires toward ourselves. It's fascinating, and also in this reasoning through of the ways and whys of God, in terms of something like self-control, until modern times, it was believed, believed firmly in the scripture, even in pagan culture, that a virtuous life was a free life, and a fulfilled life, and a fruitful life. And a virtuous life, in everybody's list, included self-control. So, not doing everything you want to do meant you were free. You were actually free to say no. Not free just to say yes to everything. So there's a lot to dig into with just one concept, one instruction from God called self-control. And I'm just giving you that as an example for how it works. Just dig deeper, dig deeper, dig deeper, brother. 
But as you do so, not just for your ministry, always keep in mind that your first counselee is Eric Fessmeyer. Second couple, verse 35. Lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. The first couplet focused on obedience and understanding rooted in instruction. Rooted in the mind. This couplet connects obedience with heart desire. Incline my heart. Desire. We need both. We need a transformed mind and we need a transformed heart. And so the question comes, what is the source of a transformed heart? I want to mention a phrase that I find to be quite compelling. The expulsive power of a greater love. The transformation of our hearts because there's a greater love to be loved. Here's a quote. Only by a stronger passion can evil passions be expelled. And a soul unoccupied by positive devotion is sure to be occupied by spiritual demons. This is called the expulsive power of a new affection. When Ulysses passed the Isle of Sirens, he had himself tied to the mast and his ears stopped with wax that he might not hear the sirens singing, a picture of many a man's pitiful attempts at negative goodness. But when Orpheus passed the Isle of Sirens, he sat on the deck indifferent, for he too was a mus musician and could make melodies so much more beautiful than the sirens that their alluring songs were to him discordant. Such is the master's triumphant life of positive goodness, so glad, so full, that it conquers sin by surpassing it. Have you such a saving positiveness of an expulsive love in your life? We need a greater love, a greater beauty, a greater glory, a greater goodness, a greater desire. And where does that come from? There's only one way, brother, and I think that's spending time with Jesus. Spending time with Jesus. The Lord is my shepherd, and there is no other. John chapter 10. Of all the voices in the world, the sheep hear my voice and follow me. The space in your heart to pursue the intimacy with Christ, training your mind and your heart to see the glory of God in the face of Christ. Again, I'm just going to give you a little example. Several years ago, I was on an eight-day silent retreat, and I was reading through the book of John, and I stumbled across that, in John chapter 1, that little simple story of uh, two of the disciples, excuse me, was it two or three? Three of the disciples, I think, said, look, Jesus said, come on with me. You know, where do you live? Come on, follow me. And they, it says they came home, it was late in the day, they spent the evening together. And I kind of wonder whether they had bedrolls, they spent the whole night there, they had dinner together, who knows? But I began to just sit with that. And I'm, I'm using this by example because it was very, very powerful in my heart when I did it, is I literally began to imagine myself there. And what would it be like to sit with Jesus in such a relaxed atmosphere that we could have dinner and just hang out for the rest of the night just and to realize that Jesus, the Lord and Savior of the world, literally invited some people to come to his home, people like me, people like you, just to hang out. And that opened up for me an understanding of Christ that I hope I can continue to cling on to. It changes my desires. 
I see a beauty, I see a glory. It stirs up in me an expulsive love, something that's more powerful than the alternative. Eric, I know you, and I know you want to walk with God, and you love the Lord, and you, your heart is already His. Don't ever give up on that, don't ever lessen up on that, don't ever lighten up on that. And as you walk into ministry, any day of ministry, take the time in prayer to begin each day and offer through the day so that you might remind yourself of the necessity of being alert and open to the voice of the shepherd saying all the time, incline my heart toward your testimonies. And let me press the point to your priestly ministry. In this place you're going to be, here in the church and also in the community, in both places, you're going to be encouraged. You're going to be called to encourage and counsel people to find a greater love. And in that process, there are going to be moments when you are actually going to be Jesus to them. Because that greater love has to be mediated through flesh and blood of somebody who will walk with somebody else through the darkness or the pain of their twisted desires and show them a beauty that draws them further and further away from the darkness toward that expulsive power of love. You're not going to be everybody's best friend. But what's really fascinating to me is if you in your priestly ministry will access it, you can be somebody's best friend in the very moment that you're with them. You can be fully present to them and companioning alongside as the shepherd of the souls, befriending and mentoring people in their intimacy with Jesus, praying faithfully for the transformation of their hearts. First couplet, instruction rooted in understanding and mind. Second cup of obedience, rooted in love. Mind, heart, guess where the next one is? Will, right? You can imagine. Verses 37 and 38. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. Confirm to your servant your promise that, it may be, that you may be feared. Now what the psalmist is praying, I think, is he's continuing to ask God to touch his mind and to shape his heart but there's those moments when we simply need a strong and disciplined will to do the right thing. We don't even understand it yet. We may not feel it. We may not desire it. And what the psalmist is saying is, I can turn my eyes from a worthless thing, but physically almost, but I need the strength and help of God to turn the eyes of my heart the rest of the way. I can't expect him to turn my heart if I won't turn my gaze. But as we turn, he turns. And just picture it that way. As we turn, he turns. I believe after the growth of understanding and the development of desire, we would still need the literal help and hand of God to do what he calls us to do. To give muscle to our weak wills. So Lord, the psalmist prays, reinforce in me the life that you've offered me. And as you do this, he throws in this little phrase, confirm the promises of your life, of the promises of life from you. And I kind of was wondering, what's that about? And I think in terms, again, with the will, what the promise of God is this thing that he declares will be true. The promises of God are yes and amen in Christ. And he will do it. But so many times the promises seem a million miles away. They seem so disconnected from reality. And we need a strong and firm will. This is actually a way in which our will is exercised to live into that promise. Live as if it's true now, because it will become true, and in the living into it, it becomes true in our lives. 
Listen to what John says in 1 John. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. He's promised us that we're children of God, as John says, and we are. The reason why the world doesn't know us is that they didn't know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. There's a promise there. But we know that when he appears, we should be like him. That's a promise. Because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him, in that promise, purifies himself as he is pure. In other words, that's the promise of who we're going to be. And living in that promise means I purify myself according to what I will be. That's an act of the will that strengthens the will because we actually see the transformation of God in our own lives. And things begin to change because we become more and more like what we we're promised to be. Wow, it's fantastic. It really is. Mind, heart, will. That's the whole package of a transformed life. You know it's not. Because there's this very challenging thing deep within the heart of all of us called shame. Verse 39. Turn away the reproach that I dread, for your rules are good. I long for your precepts, and in your righteousness give me life. The psalmist has come to the deepest fears of his soul. Not the fear of what others will do to him, but the fears of what he will do to himself and his ministry. The fear of his own defaulting and turning away. The fear of being discovered to be a fraud. The secret fears of reproach are buried deep within us, within each of us. They're buried in you and me and all of us as human beings, as men, as ministers, as women, every one of us in this room. There's these secret fears of what we will do to ourselves. We know our struggles with doubt and unbelief. We know our besetting sins. We know our temptations. We know the messages that have lodged into our hearts from voices we don't even remember. The messages of doom and of in, un, un, inevitable failure. We know our failures of strength and our failures of courage. And we work, hopefully, powerfully in the power of God, but in the end, just like in the beginning, there, do we not need the Lord to infuse in us a life that we do not have for ourselves? What is the healing for that shame? What is the healing for that shame? And we cry out, by your mercy, good Lord, who deliver us. That's what the psalmist is praying. Turn away the reproach that I dread. And in your righteousness, give me life. A lovely way that Paul begins to wind toward the end of his life. It's full of joy and gratitude, and maybe even a little bit of triumph. Because, you know, I, I see the finish line. I've, I've, I've won the race. I've fought the fight. And there is that hope that at the end of our lives, we will not default. And the doom will not fall on us. Because we are constantly given through this psalm, my heart will, the increasing freedom that our shame is not what defines us anymore. And it is healed into the righteousness of God that has applied to us in Jesus Christ. Eric, prayer regarding the deepest elements of your soul is the starting point in the continuing core of your ministry. Your own ongoing transformation of mind, heart, will, and shame, so that out of your innermost being shall flow the life of Christ and the promise that you can say to other people, I know there is a hope because I am living it. 
in your priestly ministry, focused, I think, in a very unique way on deep healing and transformation. We're pumped that you're going to be a part of who we are. We're grateful for your gifts and grateful for your call. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.